and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We have uh, a first-time guest today who I'm very excited about. Um, one could say that in the sort of the the bestiary of 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 Washington uh, animals, uh, he is an apex predator in some ways. He's been around for a while. He used to, for a long time. He was a foreign power. I'll, I'll just read you the short bio. Makes it easier. Robert D. Kaplan is the best-selling author of 22 books on foreign affairs and travel, translated into many languages. Among them are The Loom of Time, The Tragic Mind, uh, Adriatic, The Good American, The Revenge of Geography, Asia's Cauldron, The Coming Anarchy, and Balkan Ghosts. He holds the Robert Strauss Hupe Chair, I'll get correction on pronunciation if I need it, in geopolitics at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He was a foreign affairs reporter for the Atlantic for uh, three decades. Defense Advisory Board, Foreign Policy named him, twice named him one of the world's top 100 global thinkers. And he has a new book out. We are actually recording on pub date, The Loom of Time Between Empire and Anarchy from the Mediterranean to China. Robert Kaplan, thank you so much for coming on. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Jonah. I have many questions for you, uh, but the very first is one I ask all authors when they come on, because it's the question I always want to get when I'm on a book tour. What's your book about? Well, the book, by, the book is about the greater Middle East, from Greece to, to Western China, essentially. So it's more than the Arab world, more than just Persia, more than just uh, Turkey. And it's a kind of book nobody writes anymore, I like to think. Um, because it's not political science completely. It's not history completely. It's travel. It's memoir. It's a lot of reporting, you know, interviewing dozens of people in many countries. It's sort of a, a, an old-fashioned generalist book about a vast region. And the reason I subtitle it Between Empire and Anarchy, I think it's because Washington sees things between democracy and authoritarianism. But from the region's point of view, you have, you know, it's you have these two extremes of the legacy of empire, and that's not just the British or French Empire, it's the Ottomans, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, and many others. It's imperial rule of one sort or of another, Western or non-Western, going back hundreds and thousands of years. And it's anarchy and the other extreme. It's how to come up, you know, my main theme is, and everyone I speak to and interview throughout the region, is how can we get to some happy middle ground between these two extremes? That it may be democratic, it may not be, but even if it's not, it gives people a sense of dignity and it's consultative government. Um, you know, like we see in Morocco and Oman in Jordan, where which are the least repressive regimes, you know, um, in the region, so to speak. So that's what the book's about. And, you know, essentially. So uh, it's funny. I'm so torn on some of this because I am very much against teleology. And um, I think we should be incredibly grateful for Western liberal democratic capitalism because it's unnatural. Right. I mean, there's a big theme. I, I take one of the big themes I take from your stuff is the the more sort of traditional authoritarian, not brutal and cruel, but just traditional 
traditionally ordered traditional societies, tribal societies, religious societies. That is the norm in the world through all time. And what we think of as natural is actually profoundly unnatural. I completely agree. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm very sympathetic with that aspect of your writing and I, I get a lot out of it. At the same time, I wonder if, because I'm with you that not all authoritarianisms, not all authoritarianisms are alike, but would it be more helpful as a structure, as a framework, if we talked about rule of law based societies versus non rule of law based societies? Because I think you can have some forms of authoritarianism that are rule of law based that aren't necessarily democracies or not necessarily entirely liberal as we would understand it. Yes, obviously you can, because just because there's no elections doesn't mean there aren't rules and regulations and, and doesn't mean people can't criticize things in the society. For instance, in Saudi Arabia and particularly in the Gulf Arab states, you have what you have a kind of social contract, um, meaning that the rulers deliver predictable governance with predictable smooth transitions of power, no chaos, no revolutions, uh, predictable life, lifestyle. You know, people can go about their business. They can criticize bureaucracies on Twitter if they're not working very well. Just don't touch the regime. Just don't say anything bad about the regime. And that's the basic social contract. You know, the people are fine. We won't touch the regime, but you have to provide good governance, you know, good, stable governments, governance. And that more or less works throughout the monarchies, the sultanates of the of the Arabian Gulf. It also works in Morocco, in Jordan, you know, in Oman, um, where you get where you get. And I go into this in the book, the real extreme, brutal, totalitarian regimes or just crazy regimes like Libya under Gaddafi, uh, uh, Syria, particularly under Bashar al-Assad, less so under his father, Hafez al-Assad, and Iraq under the various Ba'athist dictators culminating in Saddam Hussein, you get something that's extreme. See, one of the things I've learned as a, as a foreign correspondent over decades is the world is not neatly divided, Jonah, between exemplary democracies and horrible dictatorships. There's a lot of gray areas in between. And there are a lot of countries where it's a gray area in between, where it's, you know, illiberal democracies, um, you know, livable dictatorships. Um, and that's what you find. You 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 you. It's about noticing distinctions between regimes rather than just putting, just erecting two artificial categories. Yeah, I mean, I, I've often said that if I had to pick one institution that I wanted to be working properly and live in a society, it would be honest courts rather than honest elections. Because um, <laughs> as long as you have that key to get out of real trouble, that's fair. It seems to me that's, you know, I'd rather live under a regime, an authoritarian regime with the Bill of Rights strictly adhered to than a democratic regime where everything was an open question for, for, for voters and whatnot. But all right. So on the age of empire part, right. Are there, are there, or the issue of empire part, how do you fit China into its, um, because on the one hand it has an ancient history of being an empire. On the other hand, it doesn't have an ancient history of being imperial in the middle East. So just give us a tour of 
what they're doing and how you see it. Yeah, China, you know, China is so old, it almost doesn't have a beginning. You know, it goes back thousands of years. It had a fully developed bureaucracy during uh, during the Roman em- during the time of the Roman Empire, etc. Um, China always saw itself as the center of the world. You know, the Middle Kingdom and every place else was marginal, so to speak, and this gave them a sort of confidence. So that they didn't, they're, they're not a missionary orient. They don't have a missionary oriented foreign policy the way we have had, you know, you know, promoting a system of governments, governance, they'll deal with anybody. They'll deal with crooks, dictators, honest Democrats in Western Europe, uh, whatever, as long as they can get their oil and gas and sell their, sell their consumer products, they'll deal with anyone. Um, they're buying more gas and oil from, from Saudi Arabia and Iran than almost anyone else in the world, than from anyone else in the world. They're also building this vast project in the Suez Canal and building a whole new capital for Egypt. Uh, so they're everywhere in the Middle East. Where every, I was in Ethiopia. The skyscrapers are all built by the Chinese in Addis Ababa. You know, you know, the hand of the Chinese are everywhere in the greater Middle East. Um, and you even see, you know, they have a, a military base in Djibouti at the mouth of the Red Sea. They have their eyes on a second military base in Port Sudan. Uh, they have a state-of-the-art port with military applications in Gwadar, which is the southwestern tip of Pakistan, but it's actually the Middle East because it's by the entrance to the Persian Gulf. So China is really seeking to use the Middle East as a kind of conduit between its, its, you know, its trade interests in, West, in Europe and its power in East Asia. And, uh, and I think um, that this is really what's influenced the Biden administration in terms of seeking a rapprochement between the Saudis and the Israelis, this fear of China, the fear that if they don't erect a kind of mini Pax Americana of their own between the Saudis and the Israelis, the Chinese will continue to, you know, to replace us in the Middle East. I was listening to your podcast you did with John Gray for Intelligence Squared, and um, and I agree with you. I've written a couple LA Times columns about how I get frustrated when people refer to U.S. and China relations as a new Cold War, and I, I, I don't mind it as long as you use a lowercase C and a lowercase W, but it's it's apples to orange. It's it's not even apples and oranges. It's it's apples in and cinder blocks comparison between what the cold war was about and whatever our hostilities or antagonisms with China are about in terms of historical parallels. But I wonder if you could sort of explain what you think. Let me put it this way. I struggle with this a lot is that the Soviet union was basically uh, a unique threat, but also a convenient one because it was not part of the global economy. We didn't depend on it for the global economy and the kind of threat that it posed was in some ways more ideological. It was, it captured the imaginations of a lot of, whether you want to call them useful idiots or idealistic people, you know, we can have an argument about that, but uh, it was the aspirational nature of the Soviet union appealed to a lot of people and made them blind to the reality of it. It seems to me China doesn't have that kind of ideological appeal in the world. It is, as you put it much more, as you describe it is much more transactional. 
And so I'm trying to think, is the best compare historical comparison to our relationship with China sort of like America versus, say, Germany at the beginning of the 20th century, which was a major commercial power as well? I mean, is there a historical antecedent that would help us sort of calibrate this? It's hard, it's hard to come up with one. I've always used Cold War in lowercase for the U.S. and China. Um, and used it just as an entry point to describe the differences, which, as you say, the Soviet Union didn't have an economy. And to go further than that, because the Soviet Union lacked a real economy, U.S.-European relations and U.S.-Japanese relations were simplistic, you know, because we were all trading with each other. And it's not like now where the Europeans are trading with China and, you know, the Germans want to have China as their main trading partner and to get security protection from the United States. Um, You know, there are much precisely because China is the second largest economy in the world and the Soviet Union didn't have an economy. uh, uh, Relations between Western allies are much more complex and challenging now than they were during the original Cold War. And also because it's not ideological and it's and the Chinese deal with regimes in a transactional basis they're much more appealing to regimes in the Middle East. Because remember, the Middle East is an area from Morocco to Pakistan. It's like a fourth of the circumference of the earth where there's no working democracy anywhere. Pakistan is really a military state that holds elections, um, essentially. There's no working democracy. So that as Saudis told me repeatedly in Riyadh, they like China. China buys their oil, buys their gas, and here's the kicker, doesn't give them any lectures about democracy or human rights. And this was at the height of the division between the Biden administration and China uh, and the Biden administration in Saudi Arabia when I was in Saudi about a year year ago, um, where they were really upset with the Biden administration for... um, you know, for constantly condemning them on human rights. And the Saudis would say, we hear none of this from China. And by the way, you know, in terms of social reforms, we've been liberalizing more than any Saudi regime in the past. And we're the only part of the Arab Spring that's actually working, even though it's without elections and even though it's combined with authoritarianism. So China has an appeal precisely because they're, because they're not ideological they, uh, and because they're such a, it, but it's mainly because they're such a big customer for oil and gas. And, um, and, and so far, at least, their military footprint in the greater Middle East is small. It's growing, but it's small. So they're not seen as, um, as threatening as the Americans are. I gather, and you, you, Feel free to correct me. You know, I gather your general attitude towards American foreign policy should be one of nuanced realism, right? Or nuanced offensive realism, if we want to get theoretical, um, where we have a calm like we see them approach to specific regimes, specific relationships, and um, not get so hung up on the democracy stuff. 
So why don't you explain? Why don't you flesh it out rather than me characterize your foreign policy approach? Because I I, I want to get to a theoretical conversation a little bit with you, even though we want, I want to get back to the travelogue stuff too. Sure, um, I see myself as a realist internationalist uh, because of the the tragic nature of the Iraq War. Realism went isolationist after the Iraq War, and we see examples of that. You know, um, so realism is confused now with neo isolationism. That's not the realism I, I'm close to. I, you know, when I think of realism, I think of James Baker, George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, people, you know, people like that, you know, and even people like Jake Sullivan, you know, on, you know, you know, on, on the Democratic side. I think once people get into government and wear three laminated tags around their neck, they all become realists instantly <laughs> because they have to deal with U.S. interests. You know, they have to deal with the world as it is, not the way they would want it to be. They may be able to nudge it in the direction of where they want it to be, but they're basically dealing with, you know, with strategic and economic interests and things like that. And and so I'm like a realist internationalist, like, you know, my hero is like George Schultz. You know, George Schultz promoted the Helsinki process, you know, from President Carter once Reagan got into office. Uh, George Schultz did a lot of good due to uh, due to famine and human rights emergencies in Africa. Um, um, you know, he you know, you, nobody can criticize him really on human rights and other things. But at the same time, he supported the introduction of SS-20 uh, Pershing missiles into Germany in 1983 to counter the Soviets' SS-22s at a time when there are, you know, millions of Europeans demonstrating against it. It was like this combination of realism with humanity. You know, that's like my avatar. Let me let me rephrase it this way. Is there a place in foreign policy for idealism at uh, in terms of goals? Is it just a matter of rhetoric? Is it uh, is it a matter for ends, but not means? I mean, how do you is there any is there anything that America can do to you see use the word nudge? What can, what can nudging actually mean as an ideological or theoretical construct? Right. Uh, look, if there was no idealism in our foreign policy, what would there be to distinguish our foreign policy with that of the Chinese? You know, you know, because uh, they're realists, too, after a fashion. No, idealism has a, a big place in American foreign policy. I think the best way of putting it was put by Henry Kissinger in his first book when he was 26 years old. You know, he said, you know, someone in power has to, you know, has to deal with what is just and what is possible. You know, what is just depends on the on the morals of your own society, of your own Western society. What is possible, though, has to take into account the way of doing things of other societies half a world away, which may not share your morals. So the idea is to combine the two, combine what is just with what is possible. And you are you're always coming up short in the real world. In, you know, in most cases, but that it's a balance. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay up letters to those who have 
unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. I'll kill myself if I don't ask you a couple more personal life questions. And then I want to come back to the ideological stuff. Anybody who's read your essays and books over the years, it is like a on unfolding geography quiz. Like you've been pretty much everywhere as far as I can tell. So first of all, um, what does your passport look like? <laughs> I mean, is it, is it just crammed with weird visas? Yeah, it is. But, you know, I have a business passport, which any of us can buy. It costs a little bit more money. What distinguishes it is it has that twice as many pages as a normal passport. And I'm at the point I have to renew my passport next year, and it's already got so many stamps in it. And you, do you ever have this experience at passport control? They stamp you in, but then you have to figure out what page they put the stamp in, because when they stamp you out, they <laughs> want to find it. And when you have a whole book crammed with stamps, sometimes I'm fiddling for like 20 minutes finding that entry stamp. So that's what my passport looks like. Is there a country you haven't been to? Yeah, there are many. There are many. I'm very superficial on visiting Latin America. I mean, I've been to Brazil, Argentina, and Colombia, but I've never been to Bolivia or Ecuador or, uh, you know, or Chile. Um, I've never been to, to Petersburg, to St. Petersburg. I always wanted to go there. I can't now with under the present regime, you know, uh, because I yeah. think it's... A, 
I think it's irresponsible for an American to travel to Russia because they could be taken hostage and then the government has to spend all this money to get you out, kind of. Um, I've never been to Petersburg. I've never been to Denmark. Um, there are, you know, quite, quite a number of places I haven't been and I haven't covered. I've never been to Southern Africa, never been to South Africa or Namibia. I'm surprised you haven't been to Denmark because that's sort of, I mean, according to Francis Fukuyama, that's the, what the entire planet is trying to get to is, yeah. is Denmark. Yeah. You think yeah. you want to you know, <laughs> check it out. Um, you know, what's Frank talking about? Um, you do all of this traveling. I don't want I'm not looking for your sources and methods and all that kind of stuff, but I mean, uh, you've been doing this for a long time. I assume when you were a younger man, your tolerance for horrible sleeping conditions was greater than it is now? Much greater. Yeah. Um, um, how do you plan this stuff? It's just so much harder now because of, because of age. You know, because with age, you want more conveniences. You just do, you know? And you have things that you're insecure about that you couldn't give a heck about, you know, 20 or 30 years earlier. So um, I, I'm, not, I'm not nearly as intrepid as I used to be. You know, but but I use intrepid with quotes because to me, the only real brave people are most of the real brave people I, I'm I've been I've encountered are war photographers, not writers, but war photographers, because they have to get into real danger zones. You know, a writer can interview people outside of the danger zone. He doesn't have to get to the front line, but it's war photographers who are surprisingly relatively a, a, a few people. Mm-hmm. It's not all that many who are the, who are the real heroes. And just what is the, what is the, sh- most exotic place that if you were to tell people to put on their bucket list that you've been to, that you would recommend people go to? I mean, is Timbuktu actually worth seeing? Uh, I've been to Timbuktu. Timbuktu is, is a cliche. Timbuktu, when I was there in 2004, um, was, you know, a beautiful mud-bricked architecture, very, you know, early Islamic design with a lot of satellite dishes, you know, here and there a satellite dish. It was not the, the edge of the earth. It was, in fact, part of the modern world. It's when you leave Timbuktu and head north into the Sahara that you really get to the edge of the, you know, you get, you, you get to, the, to the edge of the earth. Even back in 2004, Timbuktu had email, you know, Uh, you know, it's just a beautiful sounding name, but it's not the end of the world. You know, it's, you know, it's, it, 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 it's the last place north in Mali before you get to places where nobody really knows what's going on. (laughs) Um, All right. So back to this stuff. Um, One of the points you make early in the book is how, Concepts of nationalism, uh, when introduced to places that were historically always divvied up by empires, uh, you know, with the, like in Turkey with the Young Turks and, and that kind of thing, um, how the whole concept of nationalism is ill-fitting in certain parts of the world. Um, do, you th- do, you th- do you think that's still the case and to what extent? Well, 
I think that, you know, one of the problems that the middle, the greater Middle East has had with democracy, which is not spoken about it that much, is before you have democracy, you have to have a state. You have to have a modern state of some sort. Um, An empire, you know, starting with the Umayyads in the seventh century and continuing up through the Ottomans governed for 400 years from Algeria to Iraq, right up through the mid 20th century with the uh, British and French mandate system, the Middle East was governed by empires and that impeded, it slowed down the development of modern states. And if you have, and, and so if the modern state development has not been historically encouraged, then it's going to be that much harder to establish a democracy. So, you know, it's not that there's something intrinsically difficult with Islam. It's more that this legacy of imperial rule going, you know, uh, you know, where the capital in Damascus, you know, you know, from Morocco to, uh, to, 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 to Iraq was under one rule, not just under the Turks, but under all these other dynasties that I mentioned. So that's been the real challenge is, you know, is, is states. Now, there are a few stable states in the Middle East, obviously. Tunisia is one because it was a state since Roman times with a secular identity since Roman times. It's close to Europe. Uh, it's highly educated. It's the most fertile proving ground for a democratic experiment, even though it has slipped back into autocracy of late. Um, Egypt is obviously a state, you know, it's not going to fall apart, you know, a state along the Nile River. Um, I, I divide the Middle East between what I call, um, uh, you know, age old clusters of civilization, which are very coherent, like Tunisia and Egypt and Oman and uh, places that are just vague geographical expressions like Libya or Syria, where the only thing holding it together was some empire that, you know, if you look at Libya, Libya is a good example. It's big, it's vast. Western Libya historically gravitated towards Tunisia. Eastern Libya historically gravitated towards Egypt. And there was nothing much in between. So when the, um, it, 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 you know, it's the Italians ruled it as one entity for, um, you know, for a number of decades. Um, but once Kadat, and so because it was not a natural state, it could only be ruled under the most intense form of authoritarianism. So when Gaddafi fell, there was nothing. You know, it just broke into cinders, into dust, essentially. So, but the, I mean, so when you talk about Tunisia and Egypt, those are also, they also have really old conceptions of nationhood too, right? I mean, it's, I, mean, I, I get the point about as a development thing that statehood matters, but national identity matters too. I mean, if, if for whatever reason you could get uh, Erdogan and all the various players to agree to allow the Kurds to make a run of their own country, do you think they would be able to stand up a state pretty quickly? It seems to me that one of the the precursors of of a functioning state is the legitimacy of a state as expressed as a, as an expression of national identity or is that just overwrought no no it's not i was in northern iraq last year which is the kurdish part of iraq um and it's the part of iraq which functions the best 
post-U.S. invasion. And it's very safe. You can travel around by buses, taxis, you know, um, you know, you don't need a bodyguard, you know, no, nobody's going to rob you or anything, any, anything of that sort is going to happen. But it's very, but there are two things about it. It's very corrupt. And I mean abnormally corrupt. It's a cash economy. You can't use credit cards outside of one or two hotels. And as you know, a cash economy is not a traceable economy. So it's a lot of corruption. You know, with cre- with plastic comes, uh, you know, uh, you know, some ability to monitor transactions and to tax people. So it's abnormally corrupt. And it's also um, divided between two clans. Once you're in northern Iraq, there's the northeastern Iraq and northwestern Iraq, which which run a bit differently and might as well be two different countries. Um, and and what. Kurds told me is, yes, we've done well since the U.S. invasion, but not really as well as we should have. We should have the development now of Vietnam or Malaysia, which is a high level of development, but we don't. And that's because of corruption, you know, because we're governed by people who spent their lives fighting the state, fighting Saddam, you know, you know, as, you know, as guerrillas essentially, and they haven't made the transition into modern governance with rules and regulations and laws and all of that. Um, I think if you have a greater Turkish state, including Southeast Turkey, uh, Northern, Northeast Syria, North, you know, northern Iraq, it would prop because of the divisions between the Kurds themselves in this incredibly mountainous area. You know, it's very mountainous. It's given to division, you know, from one valley to the next. Um, uh, when you're um, it would probably be a weak state. It would with a lot of with a, with a lot of divisions but no weaker than any of the states around it, essentially. Um, so um, re- remember, there was supposed to be a greater Kurdistan after World War One. you know, immediately after World War One, It didn't come about because Ataturk, you know, Ataturk proved such a great fighting war leader that he was able to kick the Greeks out of Anatolia and redraw the boundaries, essentially, um, so that there was a second round of, of post-World War I peace treaties. Um, but, uh, but yes, northern Iraq works. You know, it works. It's just not as good as it should be because of corruption. So when you travel around the Middle East, the standard view, in, at least in my sort of milieu, about the the role of Israel and the Palestinians in the Middle East is that they that various Arab regimes kind of use them like the Sudeten Germans as this thing to distract their own populations from their own shortcomings. And that the degree to which the average Arab in the street really cared about the plight of the Palestinians, they might've hated Israel, but the degree to which they actually cared about the plight of the Palestinians was diminished. Are, what are you seeing in terms of how the general population or the, or even the elites um, are making of this just the, the, the rapid detente, for want of a better word, between Israel and Saudi and some of these other countries. Um, the normalization of Israel is it something that could have a huge blowback, or is it going? Do you think? Are you optimistic that it's going to proceed apace? No, I don't think it's going to have a huge blowback. I think, first of all, dealing with the Gulf states. 
during the Abraham Accords under the Trump administration. You know, that was more in the nature of a corporate merger um, in the sense that the Gulf Arabs figured out that the Americans are weaker. They're less trustworthy. We have this awful enemy to our north, Iran. And meanwhile, the Israelis are masters of high tech cyber warfare, and we want some of their technology in everything. So we'll make a very cold-blooded merger, essentially, with them. And because unlike the Egyptians, who fought several wars with the Israelis, I mean, you know, Egyptian attitudes towards Israel are very complicated, precisely because it was about territory and blood and wars. The Gulf Arabs really had nothing to do historically with, um, uh, um, with Israel. So they could much easily psychologically make peace. And although the Saudis were not part of the Abraham Accords officially, behind the scenes, they gave their blessing to it, or else it couldn't have happened in the first place. Now, um, what what I see is that um, I noticed this in Saudi Arabia and other places. Over the years, the Arabs have become more and more fed up with Palestinian leadership. Because they find it's, you know, it's ineffectual, it's, it's divided among itself, it passed up a number of opportunities, you know, to make, uh, to make peace. And so, so while they, on the one hand, uh, you know, are, hate the Israeli right and Netanyahu for the way they treat the Palestinians, on the other hand, it's sort of like the Palestinians have themselves to blame you know, for this. And that's kind of the, you know, what's emerged as the Arab, as the Arab attitude. That being said, remember that Saudi Arabia is not a normal Arab country. It's the custodian of the holy places. And because it's the custodian of the holy places, it can't just make a quick slapdash peace with Israel. You know, you know, because it's aware, especially in a social media age where one Twitter feed can go viral, that you could get another more bloody intifada with the snap of a finger could happen. And that's what the Saudis are worried about. It's this merging of an unresolved Palestinian problem with the uh, destabilizing effects of social media. Just staying on Saudi Arabia for just a second. I, I think the, the murder of Khashoggi was a terrible thing. I'm, I'm pretty established on that. I, I don't think it's a difficult thing to say that it was a terrible thing and, and we should have protested it. And I get why the Washington Post won't let it go and, and considers it sort of a central thing. If something happened to a staffer, my you know, outlet, I, I would have the same attitude. At the same time, it seems to me, as you referenced before, that, that, that MBS is directionally doing a lot of good things um, for Saudi Arabia. I mean, I agree with all of them, you know, um, but does this sort of get at sort of the kind of realism that you advocate, which is you're going to have to deal with some SOBs in, in the real world yeah. and constantly lecturing yeah. the Saudi, the Saudis doesn't get many returns. Right. Remember when Franklin Roosevelt met with King Abdulaziz on the USS Quincy and I think it was February 1945, he Roosevelt wasn't there because he liked Abdulaziz, who had slaves, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, he not only did he oppress women, but he had slaves. Um, did it because of oil. 
You know, you know, it was it was like we don't like we, you know, we have nothing in common with these people, but we have to deal with them. You know, in a post in a post Cold War in a post World War II order that's going to going to emerge. And I think the same thing is operative now. Um, and, you know, NBS, you know, why did NBS, what's the real reason why NBS has, you know, allowed women to drive, to join the workforce, to take the, take the hijab off, all of that stuff. It's because NBS very consciously knows that the 21st century over time gradually will see the end of the oil and gas age and the beginning of a renewable age. And he wants to get set, set, and he's young. And because he's young, he may be in power for decades and decades to come while this is ha- while this transition is happening. And he has to get Saudi Arabia to a point where it's a dynamic entrepreneurial society. And you can't have that happen if you lock up half your population. So that's what's really behind the, you know, that we'll call it the liberation of women. And I have to tell you, it's quite striking. Uh, when you're in Saudi Arabia, when you're in an office or a hotel, women are everywhere behind the desks helping you. They're often much more dynamic and knowledgeable than the men. They're very out front, aggressive. There's been, you know, it's an enormous change over the past half decade. And what that has done is it's made the men work harder. The men feel more insecure because if you, if you, unlock the gates for half the population, it changes the other half as well. So, you know, that's what's happening. And I also think stabilizing relations with Israel, perhaps a rapprochement with Israel, something like that, um, also has to do with getting Saudi Arabia geared up for the for for for, uh, for not the post-petroleum era, but an, an era that goes in, in gradually away from oil and gas, you know, because he's got to get investment from Israel. He needs a lot of that high tech stuff. Um, this is all about making sure Saudi Arabia doesn't just fall apart as people buy less oil and gas during the period of his rule, which could last another 40 years or 50 years or so. So, I mean, you know this stuff better than I do, but, you know, there was this, was it, was that, it was basically the Kuznets curve for democracy where once a country reached uh, something like $6,000 per capita income, this these numbers are now very old. Um, once it made a transition to democracy, it never went back, right? And the one exception to all that was always uh, countries like Saudi Arabia that had the natural resources curse, where you didn't need a middle class. Now, historically, the, the democracy, one theory of where democracy comes from or liberalism comes from is you get a bourgeois middle class that is heavily taxed and because it's taxed, it then demands representation, you know, for its taxation and those expanding middle-class rights break down nobility and aristocracy and blah, 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 blah. And, and resource rich countries, you have this problem where you can just use the middle-class as clients rather than, you know, and subsidize them rather than actually depend on extract rents from them. Is does Saudi have the problem that, that if it actually becomes a dynamic economy with a, with a real middle class, not a sort of, not a sort of welfare class, middle class, that that will actually be really destabilizing because China seems to realize that. And that's one of the reasons why they've gone a different way. 
Yeah, I, I actually wrestle with that in the book because I interview one Saudi after another who says human rights. I can get my passport renewed online without standing in a, in a dirty government office. That's a human right. You know, a woman can have two years off after birth, a, after giving birth to be with her child. That's a human right. They, they kept listing to me conveniences and calling them human rights. And I said to myself, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I write this, that right now for them, that's a human right. But as time goes on, you know, populations are ungrateful. You know, give them something, they want something else, you know, and middle classes especially are ungrateful. There will come a time when the Saudis, you know, when young Saudis will equate human rights with stuff that we equate human rights with, we're just not at that point yet. And so, you know, the more entrepreneurial and developed and dynamic Saudi becomes, the more harder to govern it will become without absolute outright oppression, because people will demand more. And you can't have like, I make the, there's a, a, a retired scholar journalist of the Middle East from the Washington Post, David Ottaway who makes the, uh, you know, the comparison, he says, he said, is NBS like Icarus in the Greek myths, you know, with wax wings flying too close to the sun? Because MBS wants technocracy, he wants efficiency, he wants entrepreneurship, but he also wants absolute total dictatorial control. And the question is, can he have both? Well, for the time being, he can have both. But at some point, something has to give. Because if he develops this society that he wants to develop, that society simply by becoming more globalized and hooked up to the world may demand more human rights in the Western sense. Right, let's switch to China for a second, which is sort of has some analogs to the Saudi problem, right? If you had to choose, would you rather have America's problems or China's problems right now? I'd rather have America's problems. Um, uh, I know that's an extreme statement in a way because you wrote a book about, you know, the <laughs> horrors of what's happened to American democracy. I'd still rather have America's problems, too, just so you know. But I, I'm with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, China's problems are deeply structural. You know, mm -hmm. it's way in debt to a degree we can't even imagine. It's, it's an oil importer. It's a natural gas importer. We're energy self-sufficient. You know, China's borders are a headache. Even though they've made border arrangements with all the country, they've got North Korea, they've got India, you know, they have, you know, they have Russia, which with all the, all the great, you know, bear hugging between Putin and Xi, the history of the Chinese-Russian relationship along its borders is pretty bad you know, and could get bad again. Whereas our borders are very benign. We have two oceans. We have a thin band of Canadian middle-class civilization to our north. <laughs> um, and our only difficult border is in the southwest with Mexico. And that's because, and this is a whole other subject, Northern South America and Central America have turned into gang violence. You know, you know, gangs control so many of these countries beneath the patina of elections that people are fleeing 
anarchy. They're fleeing the absolute absence of rule of law. And they're, you know, and that's what's driving them to the border. But compared to China, you know, our border problems are much less. We have more natural resources in many ways. And, um, and also we're, this, you know, the thing about American history that always strikes me is how we can reinvent ourselves, you know, you know, the Jacksonian revolution, the, 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 the progressives at the turn of the 20th century, the new deal, you know, just when we're, people are about to write us off, we come up with something, you know, something happens. So, um, and I think our, you know, it, just imagine if Donald Trump were to die tomorrow, you know, or, you know, or something, or were for some reason or another to flame out in the primaries or something, suddenly we may look very different at American democracy, you know, uh, because we're under the sway, this, you know, a, a sizable minority of the population has been under the sway of a demagogue. You know, and once, you know, once he's gone from the scene, you could write a lot, you know, things could look much more optimistic. I think that's right. I think that getting closer to my ballywick, you take Trump out of the equation. Most of the Trump imitators in the Republican Party are pretty pathetic and are not particularly good at winning an argument. Vivek Ramaswamy is having his sort of neo-isolationist moment, um, but I think it's going to be a short lived moment. But the other, I mean, the other structural problems with China is one, it, you know, people always used to say it was going to get old before it got rich. Um, it does have a huge middle class that's rich for sure, but it also got, still got a ton of poor people. And now it's got this demographic decline problem where they're begging people, begging people to have more than one kid. That worries me in terms of the social unrest that it could bring. And so I'm just wondering, where do you, where do you come down on where Xi is coming is going in the next five years. Do you think he's going to make a play for Taiwan? A military play. Look, she's, she's goal was always to be the opposite of Gorbachev. Uh, you know, Gorbachev liberated the society and thought he could reform it. He could reform the economy and also liberate its politics at the same time. And that led to chaos and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, she is not going to do any liberalization on the top. You know, essentially, she's problem is that he wants more control. He wants more Leninism. But that what that means is you're putting economic and financial power into the hands of people who are ideologues more than they're economists or, or financiers. And that will lead to mistakes. It has led to mistakes. You know, it, you know, it will lead, it will lead to mistakes. Um, I think that um, he's, um, you know, you know, he's the polar opposite of Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping was a real classic Mandarin, you know, you know, from, from, from in the old Chinese way, you know, he was eminently practical and wise. And Deng Xiaoping was, you know, was, was on the route to liberating China, not as a democracy, but as basically a soft, enlightened, collegial, risk-averse authoritarianism, which, and, you know, which Deng's successors, uh, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, all, uh, all agreed with, she has taken it in a real Leninist direction. Uh, you know, he's got more power and is feared more than any Chinese leader since Mao. 
you know? And I don't see this ending well. You know, it may take a decade or two, but I, I just don't see this ending well for China. Um, I, I do want to get your take on this. So in the context of the sort of neo-great game that we're increasingly into and the, the projection of, of power and, and the need to be realistic about these things, America's, uh, I, I, I'm fine with anybody who said we needed to pull out of Afghanistan. But the manner in which we pulled out of Afghanistan, how consequential do you think it was? Um, do you think there was a way to pull out without those kinds of consequences? And, um, um, or was this sort of baked into the cake no matter what? It was going to be this ugly thing, um, which has its own problems. I think the ugly withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, had an ironic effect. It made Putin assume that, that the Biden administration was weak and pathetic. And it may have entered into his calculations and why he thought he could get away with invading Ukraine. And it had a double ironic effect because the Biden administration itself was so devastated by the mistakes it made that it had a kind of come to Jesus moment, you know, because it knew there were other crises ahead. And the team as a team, you know, CIA, state, the National Security Council, the Pentagon had to function better in future crises. So I think, with, you, know, you know, if they didn't have the impetus, this shame from the failure in Afghanistan, they might not have handled Ukraine as well as they have. And I think they've handled it pretty well so far. Uh, you know, you know, you know the, the, it's been the greatest demonstration of American power uh, since the first Gulf War and the elder Bush. Um, and even if it goes into a stalemate, it's steadily weakening the Russian empire. You know, it makes it harder and harder for Putin to project power in the Caucasus, in Central Asia, in the Russian Far East, because he just doesn't have the wherewithal for it. So um, I'm not as down on the Biden administration in Ukraine as others are. But I think the, the, the Af- there, of course, and someone who makes that made this point crystal clear in an op-ed was Fred Kagan, I think, in the New York Times about how we should have withdrawn from Afghanistan. He said, basically, fine, you want to withdraw? That's okay. Here's how you do it. You don't do it, you know, in the summer during the fighting season. You do it at the beginning of winter. You don't set any dates certain publicly. You don't tie it to any... Um, uh, to any symbolic event because it becomes a symbolic event on the other side and, and, it, and you know, it encourages them to fight even harder and humiliate you. There are, you know, there are good, you know, whether or not, not we should have withdrawn, the manner in which we did could have been done much better. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I mean, I, I think it is a perfectly colorable, defensible position to say we should have gotten out of Afghanistan. I think the manner in which we did it was soaked up with all sorts of, of pretty consequential problems. But I, I'm just kind of curious, I mean, what do you think, if, if in fact we're entering in, in essentially into a new age of empire and that we need to pivot to Asia, as the, 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 the conventional wisdom constantly tells us, which I'm not saying is wrong, isn't having a forward base with all sorts of monitoring and uh, – uh, force projection in terms of, uh, you know, uh, air power right in the middle of that entire neighborhood, something of value in a pure 
neo-realist, Machiavellian, realpolitik kind of way. I mean, forget what it says about people who accuse us of American empire. If you're fine with American empire, wouldn't you want uh, to be able, be able to project power from right there? Um, I, I, it, it became too costly. You know, it simply became too costly because none of our goal, original goals from invading uh, Afghanistan in October 2001 could could be met at all. You know, and 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 the fact is, we have no real interests in Afghanistan. The Chinese have have mineral interests in Afghanistan. So do the Indians have interests in Afghanistan. We had too little interests. Uh, and it was too costly to maintain to kind of keep it to, to keep us there for year upon year upon year. Um, okay, I, I don't want to abuse my time with you, but just since we talked about Russia, um, I, I, I very much am sympathetic to your your view about how order is very very important for humans, and it's actually more important than democracy and human rights, right? Because basically order, order involves things like personal safety, um, the ability to live in a relatively normal life, right? To make a living, to take care of your kids. If you don't have that, people don't, that's why people say, you know, uh, self-protection is the first human right. It's like, you have to, you have to feel like it's a safe world that you're in and order provides that more than democracy does. I get all that. And I agree with all that. And I understand that, that the problem with disorder at scale is huge. Russia, I am, I, I am increasingly of the mind that Russia is not an actual nation state. You know, it is, it, it is a very old land empire um, that has produced some wonderful literature and some really nice architecture, but has not actually entered modernity um, in, in, in some very important ways. And you just look at their, the, the, the continuity of their military philosophy about going back to czars, um, straight through the, the Soviet Union to, to, to Vladimir Putin, basically using their own troops as mine detectors and machine gun nest detectors. Um, it's a pretty barbaric country, and their, their rationale for imperialism I can find no redeemable moral case for it. So uh, that said, I don't want a whole bunch of little warlord states with nuclear weapons either. So um, what is the, what do you, what is the, what do you think is the future of Russia or what do you think is the future of Russia that is most possible for America to nudge Russia towards? Um, First of all, um, I, I really like your phrase, it hasn't entered modernity, because um, Russia was denied the Enlightenment because partly because of the Mongols. Um, it's a classic insecure land power in the sense that it, you know, it covers half the longitudes of the earth, but has no natural borders really that are protective in any way. It's been invaded not just by Hitler and Napoleon, but by Swedes, Lithuanians, Poles, and on and on over the centuries. So it's driven by insecurity, you know, and insecurity leads to overstretch, you know, and I think that where the Biden administration is in a very difficult position because 
I'll give you an example. Um, Indicting Putin in the International Court of The Hague, that sort of presupposes that there will soon be a post-Putin Russia and that it will be a benign post-Putin Russia. But those are big things to presuppose. I'm not so sure I'm with the, you know, I I buy all of that. The truth is Russia has always been more weakly institutionalized than China. If Xi Jinping got sick tomorrow, the Chinese regime would hold fast, would elect a new leader, maybe with a different orientation. But China is governed by institutions as much as by a dictator, whereas Russia has very weak institutions. After Putin, it's a black box. Nobody really knows. So, but do you think, because I agree with you, uh, you know, the, the, I keep bringing it up, I, this Orlando Figgins book I read about the story of Russia Oh, I read it too. A People's Tragedy. Uh, the, the, the this one is called The Story of Russia. Um, and oh, that's the short one. Yeah, that's the short one. No, he's wonderful. I mean, my lips were sufficiently tired after reading it, but um, but uh, he makes a very good case about how Russia did not have a civil society really to speak of until like the 19th century, and didn't have time to really take root. And and anyway, it seems to me like. The, when you, you you talk about how his weak institutions or it works from insecurity, there's something really terrifying about countries that have uh, that are pre-modern but have a salvific self-conception that they think they're the saviors of, of 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 civilization when in fact they are not entirely civilized themselves. I agree with you; you can't predict the future. But let's say Putin succumbs to this really terrible epidemic of people accidentally falling out of windows in Russia. Do you think the, that the borders of, I mean, you're sort of a Sam Huntington guy, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. Great admirer of his. Yeah. Uh, the, are the borders of what we call Russia sacrosanct, you know, it, like the borders of a lot of countries are the, are the borders, right? I mean, like you can argue about plus or minus a couple of miles here or there, but historic Russia is a moving target. It expanded, you know, like the size of Belgium every you know couple of years or whatever. Um, do you think there is enough national sub Russian national and uh, identity that you could see Russia in 20 years, not being all of these countries, not being one country, I should say. Russia has fallen apart a few times in its long history and has always come back together as an empire. So I would never count Russia fully out. Its Western borders are pretty fixed because of NATO. You know, you know, those are pretty fixed borders. What we're really talking about is Russian influence in places like Dagestan, Kazakhstan, and other places. That's, you know, that realm of influence, which makes uh, in, in, in a spiritual sense an empire more than a state, um, can certainly change. And we could be entering a world where China, with all of its economic weaknesses that now we're reading a lot about, um, uh, could actually gain an even deeper foothold than it currently has in, in former Soviet Central Asia, in the former Soviet Caucasus, etc. So that China will be more than just an Asian power, it'll be a Eurasian power. Um, I right, just last question. I, I, I could do this all day with you. Um, competitiveness. I, I have a huge, I've always had a big problem with competitiveness. I don't agree with Paul Krugman, right? But Paul Krugman of the mid 1990s, I actually do agree with on a few things. And 
the idea that is overtaking so much of both the, the left and the right in America is this idea that free trade is bad um, if it means losing uh, domestic capacity to do things. And I'm, I'm okay with those arguments in the hard national security sphere. Like we should make more of our artillery shells here. I'm open to that, right? But if China were to have a financial crash tomorrow, if that debt crisis hit a tipping point, it would be very good in terms of competitiveness if, if Chinese GDP dropped 50%. But it would also just be very bad for America in terms of standard of living, uh, the global economy, global stability. Um, uh, how much, how, do you, how should we think about competitiveness and interdependency? Because global, highly integrated global markets have made us more vulnerable to what happens in other countries. But at the same time, they are to the benefit of it's not a zero sum game. And there's a lot of zero sum thinking all over the place these days. Yeah. Um, the way I think about it is, you know, there has to be a quality of opportunity, you know, and, you know, and, you know, you need really competitive colleges, medical schools, all of that, which are pretty value neutral in terms of who they admit. Um, you know, because if because if we start playing games with that, we won't get incompetence. We'll just get mediocrity. You know, um, um, over time. So national, you know, being competitive within our state, within our country, that's that's what I think. Um, I think that um, you know, free trade. You know, one of the reasons why Trump was elected in 2016 was his backlash against the elite version of free trade with China and South Korea and other places. This feeling, imagined or not, that the elites were benefiting more from this from this free trade uh, regime uh, than than a lot of people in the interior of the country were. So um, I think, though. The more we're entering a more globalized, uh, claustrophobic, anxious, interconnected world where geography is not being defeated, it's being shrunk. And in that kind of a world, uh, we're better off with, enough, with free trade than is just, um, you know, than is just um, bastions of, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, just bastions of, of, of countries that all have a, you know, a, what's the word, an industrial policy or mm -hmm. something like that. All right. Robert D. Kaplan, uh, thank you so much for doing this. The, the latest book is The Loom of Time Between Empire and Anarchy from the Mediterranean to China. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful read. I haven't finished it, but I'm, uh, uh, it's a, it, I'm turning page, I was turning pages quite rapidly yesterday um, going through it. Uh, I've been a fan of your stuff for a very long time, and I highly recommend it. And thank you again for coming on The Remnant. It's been my pleasure, Jonah. Okay, so uh, uh, Robert Kaplan has left the studio. Um, I feel like I didn't quite do the, the book the service it, it deserved because it really is just a, like a lot of his stuff. It's just the sweeping, you know, tour. Um, what do the French say? Tour de raison, uh, tour of, uh, the Middle East, um, uh, with real granular color on the ground. He's a wonderful writer, but he also sounds like it could be my uncle Morty. <laughs> um, and, uh, but anyway, uh, I want to thank professor Kaplan or, well, why not Professor Gaplin? I call everybody Professor. 
uh, for coming on and want to thank everybody out there for listening and feel like there's, again, I, I do this to myself. I feel like there's something I'm supposed to be telling you people and I can't think of what it is. So why don't I just tell you uh, once again to become a uh, subscribing, a paying member of the dispatch, lots more stuff coming down the pike, uh, more meetups, more um, special uh, for member only audio content. Um, It has now been announced that uh, Declan Garvey is the new executive editor of uh, the dispatch. We're very excited about it. Um, Declan, uh, was the chief author, chief author, author of the morning dispatch. And now he's going to rule with an iron fist. Adam O'Neill, who was the executive editor, uh, has taken a job as the Washington correspondent for the economist, which we want to congratulate him for. We're very excited about Declan's new role and we think great things are coming. Oh, and for instance, you know, uh, we're going to do a sort of a experiment with we're not doing dispatch live we're recording this on tuesday august 22nd um so we're not going to do our normal dispatch live for members only where we do this video thing with various members of the dispatch uh do some um uh alcohol lubricated punditry um instead we are going to do a special dispatch live for post debate um commentary i'm not sure uh who all is going to be on, but I'm going to try and be there. And I think Steve will try and be there and, and there'll be, it'll be a cavalcade of guest stars. It'll be like a very special episode of the love boat. There's still time. If you check in, if you, if you subscribe, you can, uh, you can listen to that or watch that because it's video. It's very exciting. This new technology video. And, um, and then you can catch up with it later, uh, on the, as a dispatch podcast, conceivably, if it goes as brilliantly as our own Adam, Uh, plans on it going. And with that, I want to say thanks again for listening and I will see you next time. No, you won't because this is a podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.